Hello and welcome to Euromoney at COP26. My name is Lucy Fitzgeorge-Parker. I'm the editor for Sustainable Finance at Euromoney magazine, and I'm your host for this podcast, in which I'll be bringing you news and views from the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. Friday was day five of COP, and as environmental activists began gathering in Glasgow for two days of protests, I was able to grab a quiet quarter of an hour with Bill Winters, chief executive of Standard Chartered. I asked him what had been the high point of COP for him so far. Unless I talk to you, Lucy, uh, there's been quite a few high points. Uh, it, it's great to see and feel the energy here. Uh, I think that the, the high point really for me, though, is, is the, the recognition that the private sector has come to the fore. Uh, and that this, uh, in, many, in many ways, uh, it feels that uh, this COP is, is, is different from some of the previous COPs and that the private sector, in particular the financial services sector, uh, has both made commitments but also evidenced real action uh, to... To, to playing our, our fair part in the, the solution of the climate crisis. Uh, and our fair part uh, could end up being the, the bulk of what happens. Uh, so uh, that, that would definitely be the high point. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of talk about what the private sector can do, what the, um, <laughs> what the private sector needs to do, and the, the opportunities for finance. At the same time, there is a lot of that the private sector can't do. What support? What more support do you need from the public sector to do what needs doing? Uh, this will all work best if the public and private sector are working together on, on a few key things. Uh, we need to have uh, a, a common set of data, right? The, the kind of, in many ways, the nitty gritty of the of the decarbonization process begins with data. You have to know where you start, and you have to know how to measure progress. Uh, ideally, that would be global. Uh, you'd have a global consistency. The private sector can do a lot of that itself. Uh, but it's always easier if there's agreement amongst governments because each, well, many national governments, unfortunately not all, have their own plans, often using different data or different methodologies. To the extent that we can converge these things, then we all know what we're shooting for mm. and, and we can make the kind of progress that, that we know we need to make. Uh, the money is, is, is the second. Now, when we look at the, the amount of, uh, of money that could be raised, uh, in fact is being raised today, but, but will increase dramatically, from the private sector, uh, largely going into the developing world, uh, but not exclusively by any means, to facilitate this decarbonization agenda. Uh, we're talking about trillions of dollars already. Uh, you know, this this GFANS uh, uh, rollout with $130 trillion of, of membership, right? these, are the, these are financial institutions that are, that are marshalling $130 billion, managing $130 trillion, sorry, I, I have to get used to the T word. Uh, <laughs> And obviously not all of that is going to be splashed into climate change initiatives immediately, but, but that's, that's the, the, the very clear direction of travel. Uh, and that, the, 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 the private sector money can be enormous, but the catalyzing effect of public sector money, whether it's through multilateral development banks or through governments or through export credit agencies, the catalyzing effect of, the, of, of what would be a relatively small amount of money, I mean, let's, let's hope that we get the $100 billion for starters, but could be, could be leveraged dozens of times uh, with private sector capital to make a really big impact. But if we get the standards and the metrics right, we get the money right, then, then, then we're in business. Well, I'm very interested you mentioned data because I wanted to ask you about uh, emerging markets. We've heard a lot this week about the challenges that emerging markets are going to face when it comes to tackling climate change. Obviously, Standard Chartered has a big presence in emerging markets. Now, one of the things that I have heard recently of people saying that actually data is going to be one of the biggest problems in emerging markets and that there's a, a big risk that you end up with a big data gap between developed and developing markets and that this could actually affect the ability to channel finance to emerging markets. Do you think that is a, a risk? I'd put it into the challenge category rather than a risk. It's, it's, it's going to happen. So how does it happen? 
Standard Chartered has, uh, as you know, has, has a presence uh, across 60 countries or throughout Asia, Africa, and Middle East, uh, so many, many developing economies. And uh, I can tell you in, in, in our early discussions on, on uh, our clients' transition plans, so of course our emissions come from, uh, from our clients, uh, our discussions initially were, look, we, we don't even know where we're starting and we, we don't even know what you're talking about, really. This is going back four or five years. Uh, that's not the discussion anymore. I mean, we've got a very, very active dialogue with, with all of our key carbon emitting clients around, uh, this is how we think about you measuring your emissions. Of course, they're telling us this is how we think about how we're measuring our emissions. And it's not just because they have to satisfy Standard Chartered Bank. They have to satisfy the broad range of their investors. They have to satisfy the people to whom they're selling product, right? I mean, an exporter from South Africa is, who's selling to Unilever or to Johnson & Johnson or whatever, they have to have a, an evidenced transition plan themselves based on real data or else they're not going to be able to sell their product. So the, 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 the pressure on these companies, and I, I don't say this in a gleeful way because I think it must be very difficult, uh, who may not be getting any encouragement or help from their governments, nevertheless, uh, are under tremendous pressure and are getting tremendous help from the likes of Standard Chartered Bank or the people who are buying their product. To, to, to clarify what the data is that, that's required, what's available, uh, and then how it's properly formatted. And I assume that all of this is also a great business opportunity to some extent for banks such as Standard Chartered with a big presence in these markets. Our, our approach to business has always been, uh, we, we try to respond to our client needs. Uh, we try to do it in a way that's addressing what's particular about those needs. And then we try to generate a return from our shareholders by satisfying those client needs. If you provide a, a good solution, you get recognized for it. If you don't, you don't. Right? Uh, so uh, given the financing gap in our markets, which is probably something like three and a half trillion dollars per year, uh, the, the, and, and our, our competence as a bank in terms of, of structuring uh, sustainable financing projects, uh, bringing in uh, the, 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 this whole blended finance notion, bringing in uh, the World Bank or IFC or MIGA or, uh, or other multilateral development banks, uh, bringing export credit agencies, bringing in the public capital markets, bank markets, that's what we do. That's what we've always done. Uh, and uh, yeah, of course there's opportunities in there for us. And the question our shareholders ask is, is this, this the whole sustainability drive where Standard Chartered has been a leader, uh, is this going to be a positive or a negative for your bottom line? The answer is I don't know. Uh, I, I know that we, we're going to do everything we can to solve as many problems as we can, and I hope we get recognized for that. Uh, but we also know that we're going to do the right thing uh, by the planet because it's a commitment that we've taken on. Uh, I think on balance it probably comes out as, as something around neutral, uh, economically. It isn't really the point. Yeah. Well, we've seen, a, you've, you've been mentioning all the sort of positive things that have been happening here at COP, and clearly there have been some very exciting announcements, and a lot of people in the private sector and financial sector are making a lot of commitments. Uh, today and tomorrow, we're going to see some big climate protests in Glasgow, and a lot of people there will feel that the private sector, as well as policymakers, still just aren't moving fast enough given the urgency of the climate crisis. Do, do you have some sympathy with that point of view? Well, I have tremendous sympathy for that point of view. And, and I, I think without the, 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 the protesters or, or activists or whatever we want to call them, uh, over the past 10 or 15 years, we probably wouldn't have made the, the progress that we have. Uh, because they, they clearly have brought the issues to, to our attention. Uh, obviously, there, there are different ways of uh, protesting or different ways of making your voice heard. I think at this point, there, there's a, a very broad camp in terms of people who are prepared to, to, to do the right thing. And there's well, what's really, really needed now is dialogue around what is precisely the right thing. Uh, but is it, is it helpful to have uh, continuous pressure on governments and the private sector to go faster, faster, faster? Yes. 
have we gone fast enough? Clearly not. I mean, clearly not. Had, had we had the discussions today or in uh, that we've had over the past year, uh, immediately following or during and then following the Paris meeting, we'd be in a different place today. But you know, we didn't make the progress in five years that we needed to make, uh, and, and this is we, we can't afford to uh, to get this wrong a second time. And another of the criticisms that I've been hearing from the NGO sector, from the activist community, is around carbon offsets. And obviously that's something you've been heavily involved with. You were one of the um, main movers behind the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, uh, the chair of that group. And I was very surprised in a way to find that when talking to some of the NGOs, they are... I didn't realise the extent of opposition to carbon offsets simply as a concept. This is something they, they absolutely, it's a red line for them. Again, do you have any sympathy with their view that offsets are, you know, are just, just an excuse, just a, um, you know, a, uh, people say buying indulgences, that this is not something that should be promoted because it yeah. just encourages bad behaviour? Yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, the, the, the task force that I chaired uh, had uh, 250 members at the entity level, 450 individuals, including, I would say, the, the vast majority of the thoughtful NGOs on this topic. Um, the thoughtful NGOs see that, that the market is something to be levered to, uh, to address the underlying climate crisis that we've got. So uh, we had very healthy discussions uh, within the task force around how we address the, the concerns of others uh, who, who have not come into the fold, as it were. Um, and it's, it, the, the, the recipe uh, for, for, for dealing with these, with these concerns, first and foremost, is to make sure that, that there's a common set of standards that's a very, very high standard. Mm. So high integrity carbon markets. So a lot of the criticism of the carbon market in the past, and, and it was fair, is that there were uneven standards. And in fact, some of the standards that had been applied were unacceptable, that they weren't making a difference to the environment. Uh, either because, uh, because they weren't properly crafted, or probably in a few cases, there were bad actors. But, uh, but, but overwhelmingly, uh, the, the issue was that there was no common standard and there was no agreement on how high integrity that standard should be. Uh, we've, we have definitively resolved that question. We've come up with a set of core carbon principles uh, that were agreed by the, the task force. We've now handed the task force over to an independent body called the Integrity Council uh, that will be responsible for curating these core carbon principles. Uh, it's a body that, that has a large majority of, of independent actors, so people who are not involved in the market at all. Uh, but who are experts uh, on the topic, so NGOs, academics, and the like. Uh, extremely impressive board of directors that will be curating these core carbon principles um, with, a, with a structurally independent governance process. Uh, the, um, so I think that, that that would deal with a lot of the, the, the concerns about the offset market. That, of course, is why we set up this task force in the first place, was to address exactly those concerns. Um, I think there's a second set of concerns that, that this somehow allows uh, corporations to uh, to buy their way out of the hard the hard yards of actually reducing uh, improving their own uh, business model, creating a low carbon business model, and we've been very clear from the beginning of the task force that the task that offsets should only be used after all reduction options have been exploited, or to compensate for your carbon emissions along the way, right, uh, on the pathway to net zero. And um, th this can only be a good thing. If, if all of the pressure is on reduction and offsets are an, in an incremental tool that follows reduction, uh, then there should be no displacement. The, uh, uh, but of course, the, 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 the Integrity Council is not driving the, the debate on how a corporation reduces their emissions. That's being led by organizations like the Science-Based Target Initiative. 
who are doing excellent work to identify sector by sector and then eventually company by company what's the appropriate reduction pathway. So the stakeholders that are driving all of us in the right direction should be recognizing, number one, articulate your own transition plan. Number two, tell us the data that you're going to be using <clears throat> and, and, and give us the, the information that allows us to track whether you're actually reducing. And then three, please compensate for your, your carbon emissions along the way, which will in many cases, maybe most cases, involve the use of offsets, which can only be a good thing in terms of getting hands money into the hands of the people who can actually get the carbon out of the environment. And it also seems that to me that this is... Um probably the most effective way of addressing the nature crisis as well, of getting the financing to that. I mean, is that, do you, that's clearly a, was it a co-benefit or a side benefit of this? Oh, it's, a it's a critical benefit. And you know, the, 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 the task force, when we, when we created it, and now the, the Integrity Council, has as a core operating principle to do no harm. So but just starting right from the beginning, let, let, let's, you cannot have a qualifying carbon credit under the, under the core carbon principles. Uh, if you're uh, impacting materially at any biodiversity or access to water or uh, the rights of indigenous people use of land. Uh, so that, uh, uh, that, that will be, is embedded in the core carbon principles and as those are enshrined in, uh, in a more detailed rule book, uh, those, those will be carried on. Uh, but then apart from that, there's the, there's the economic argument, which is if we have a, a good, liquid, transparent, high integrity price for carbon, uh, there will be every opportunity for people to say, yeah, I want, I'm going I'm to reference my, my, uh, my project carbon price off of that, that liquid market, but I actually want more than, than greenhouse gas emissions reduction. I want uh, to improve the, the livelihoods of local people in a particular area around the project, uh, and I'm prepared to pay more for it. Uh, and we can, you know, as we identify the, 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 call it the most popular um, co-benefits, uh, we can have a, a second market for those co-benefits effectively as a spread against the, the, the core carbon price. So get the benefit of liquidity and transparency on the, on the core carbon price against the core carbon principles and then have a, sec, a, a second market for these co-benefits, which will be very, very impactful. Hopefully all going in the same direction of, of bringing improvement in the, in the climate challenge along with improvement on the, on the nature and, 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 and the rest of the sustainable development goals. Okay, fantastic. Well, as I said, I know you're very busy, so uh, we'll just uh, leave one more, one more quick question. What are you looking forward to for the rest of COP? What do you think? Do you think we're going to see more significant announcements? Is there anything you'll be looking out for? <clears throat> I hope so. As I heard Mark Carney say earlier this morning, uh, when it comes to negotiations, which in the case of the COP context will be around things like Article Six, uh, it's not over until it's all over. So, so I hope that as we go through next week, that the, the nations of the world are able to, to resolve the differences on. Uh, around basically the national accounting uh, for, for carbon, the way that money can change hands across borders or credit can change hands. Uh, that, would be, that would be a big boost to the market overall. The voluntary carbon market will, will operate independent of that, but to the extent that there's a clear framework uh, agreed by governments, then we can, we can plug into that and, and really get the most uh, uh, out, of the, out of the carbon market. And of course, uh, that, <clears throat> as always, there's the money. Uh, it would really be really nice if the money came on the table and uh, in a clear way that could be delivered. Uh, to those people that need it most. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed, Bill, for joining us. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Lucy. Well, that's it for today. I'll be back with more news and views from Glasgow in our next episode, so please keep a lookout for that. And in the meantime, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.